Good morning, friends. It's good to see you and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you together. Before we do that, I want to go briefly one more time to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your testimonies are wonderful. Help us to keep them. The unfolding of your word gives light. Impart understanding to us, Lord. We are simple. We open our mouth and pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 this morning. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on page 1014. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to invite you to take the co- uh, copy of the, uh, that we provided for you as a gift from us to you. Uh, we're working our way slowly through the first half of chapter 1 of First Peter because of how rich the content is and how worthy it is of us taking time to meditate on. There are certain passages of Scripture that just beg the reader to slow down and ponder each line. Passages like Romans 8, right? The whole chapter. Or passages like Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Or Philippians 2, 1 to 9, or Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and certainly there are others. And one of those others is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Uh, normally I'd take a paragraph of this size and preach a single sermon on it, but because of how rich it is, I wanted us to go more slowly. But before we look at the final verses of this paragraph, I want you to see that the main idea comes in the very first words of the paragraph. I want you to look with me at verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Often in sermons, sometimes I can just get animated and people are like, hey man, I love that you're animated and I want to feel the passion that you're feeling, but help me get there sometime. I need to understand why you want me to be so excited. I'm just going to use Peter as an argument here for sometimes it's right to just get up and be like, praise the Lord, and then I'll tell you why, because that's what Peter does here. He starts off, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're like, why, Peter? And he's like, well, let me tell you why. Here's why. The new birth, the living hope, the resurrection of Christ, the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that God guarantees we will receive, the purification of our faith through suffering, and the second coming of Jesus. All of that we find in these verses, and all of that should cause us to praise God. And that includes what we find in verses 8 and 9, as Peter concludes these opening verses and prepares to transition to the next section of the book. So I want you to go ahead and look at me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read those verses for us now. This is God's word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There are three aspects of the Christian life that I want us to consider this morning from these two verses. If you're taking notes, these are going to be my three points. The first thing, the first aspect of the Christian life that I want us to consider is the peculiarity of the Christian life. The peculiarity of the Christian life. Second, I want us to consider the characteristics of the Christian life. And finally, third, I want us to consider the destiny of the Christian life. And in all of this, I trust why we'll see why we should respond in praise to God. So first, let's consider the peculiarity of the Christian life. I'm sure you noticed as I read, twice, Peter refers to the fact that these Christians had never seen Jesus. Look at verse 8 again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. In his first statement, when he says, though you have not seen him, he's talking about the past. They weren't present in and around Jerusalem during the time of Jesus's earthly ministry. And in his second statement, when he says, though you do not now see him, he's talking about the present. You didn't see him then, and you still don't see him now. And yet... Though they had never seen Jesus, these Christians loved Jesus and believed in Jesus. And it's not just these Christians for whom that is true. That's the reality for you and me today if we follow Jesus. We have never seen him And yet we love him and believe in him. That is a peculiar reality, no? That's an odd thing to love and believe in someone whom you have never seen. It's a peculiar reality because in almost no other situations do we nor should we believe in things we haven't seen, let alone make staking matters of ultimate importance on them. It's a reason why some non-Christians think Christians are kind of gullible, right? It's kind of like everyone looked at Manti Teo back in the early 2010s. Some of you might not know who Manti Teo is. Some of you will know who he is. Some of you might remember him. He was a star linebacker for the University of Notre Dame in the early 2010s. Most people forget how amazing of a linebacker he was. He was like the best player in college football because all anyone remembers him for now is being unbelievably gullible. Teo met a girl online. In time, they started dating. Their relationship developed. It got serious over the course of a couple years. Then his girlfriend was diagnosed with leukemia and dies. He shares the story publicly during his final year in college and testifies, I'm using this as motivation during my final season 
to play as hard as I can possibly play. And he used it as motivation during a stellar final year leading all the way up to playing in the national championship. And it was like the biggest story of the year. Cover stories galore. Manti Teo playing in honor of his dead girlfriend's life, right? In, the, in, in honor of his dead girlfriend's ministry. But then it turns out she never existed, right? And worse than that, he never figured it out. Over the course of their relationship, they only ever talked by phone or chatted on the computer or text over the phone. She never let him see her in person. The pictures she sent were obviously fake. She never let him see her in person, never let him visit her in person, even though he repeatedly asked to see her. And people were rightly perplexed. Like, you dated a girl for multiple years who you never saw in person, who refused to allow you to see them in person, and you believe this person was real? People hear stories about this, about, uh, like this and think Christians are no different than Manti Teo. We believe in someone we never have seen. We've staked our entire existence on someone we have never laid eyes on. But I do have to say that is where the similarities with Manti Teo end for the Christian because unlike him, Christians and even non-Christians have numerous positive reasons to love and believe in Jesus Christ, even though we've never seen him. We can start with big, big picture evidences like the evidence for God's existence from creation, that there is something rather than nothing. Or we can think of the evidence of an objective standard of morality that's outside of ourselves, that had to come from someone outside of ourselves. Or the evidence of a designer from the exquisite design that we find in nature. But as persuasive as those arguments are, and they are persuasive, they don't get you to Jesus. They just get you to maybe believing in some unnamed God. To get to believing in Jesus, we need more evidence, more facts, right? And luckily, there's mountains of evidence about Jesus, we have unbelievable manuscript evidence testifying to his life and the miracles he performed. When you think about the manuscript evidence we have for the existence of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Gospels in the New Testament, I want you to picture a skyscraper standing next to a two-story apartment building and the difference between how tall those two things are. That's roughly equivalent to the number of manuscripts we have of the New Testament, they're like the skyscraper compared to all other historical texts combined. They're like the two-story apartment building. Even the most atheistic historians will say that it is beyond a shadow of a doubt that a man known as Jesus of Nazareth existed. They will even concede all of the non-miraculous facts contained about him in the Gospels, they'll just refuse to believe the miracles. The problem is, you can't get the historical Jesus without the miraculous Jesus. You believe one, you gotta believe the other. The only way you can deny one is to deny the other, right? And that leads to the greatest evidence of all within those manuscripts, and that is Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Friends, the only plausible argument for the disappearance of Jesus's body from the tomb that he was buried in is that Jesus rose from the dead. 
There are no other reasons that hold any weight upon any significant investigation. Jesus was seen by hundreds after his death before ascending into heaven in the presence of his disciples. And his resurrection wasn't only witnessed by hundreds, but following his resurrection, millions of people throughout history and around the world have testified to his resurrection power in their lives. And God promises even today to pour out his Holy Spirit on all who seek after Jesus. He promises to give eyes of faith to behold the risen Jesus, and through his Spirit, he will give you love for Jesus, faith in Jesus, and joy in Jesus if you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Now listen, I'm sure there are some here today, maybe even Christians, who would think, or have thought before, I would believe in Jesus. Well, Christians aren't going to say, I would believe in Jesus, because we do believe in Jesus, but I'm sure Christians have thought this. I would believe in Jesus if I could see him. If God would have given me the privilege of being there when Jesus lived, if he would have let me hear his sermons and witness his miracles, I would absolutely believe in him, but seeing as that's not going to happen, I simply can't believe in him. Friends, if you've thought that before, or you're thinking that today, I hope you understand how utterly mistaken that way of thinking is. All you have to do is read the New Testament and you will see that the vast majority of people that heard Jesus preach, that saw his miracles, that looked him in the eyes, did not believe in him. Why would any of you or us be any different? The Bible says that none of us would be any different. In fact, it says none of us would believe if it weren't first for God's mercy towards us. All of us come into the world separated from God, unable to see God because of the sins that we've committed against him. This has been mankind's situation ever since the first man and woman sinned and were cast out of God's presence. We live in a state of spiritual blindness and unbelief towards God, and God sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sins by dying in our place on the cross to bear the judgment we deserve. And God promises that whoever believes in him would be forgiven of their sins, granted the hope of eternal life, and have the blindness of their eyes removed so that they would see that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Friend, if you're considering following Jesus and you are tripped up by the lack of visible evidence, like seeing Jesus physically, I want to challenge you to read one of the Gospels. Read the Gospel of John. Read it sincerely, seeking faith. And as you read, pray earnestly that God would reveal himself to you. And I am confident, I am confident that if you seek God sincerely and you pray to him earnestly for faith in Jesus, he will give you eyes to see Jesus because God draws near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To those who've trusted in Jesus, I want you to think about Jesus's interaction with Thomas, right? Thomas refused to believe the reports that Jesus had risen, said he wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus himself. Jesus appears, Thomas believes, and then what does Jesus say to him? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's you and me. 
according to Jesus, we are blessed. God's favor is upon us by his grace and for his glory. And one of the blessings we have from God is that this peculiarity of the Christian life of not seeing Jesus will eventually come to an end. We may live by faith now, but that faith will eventually turn to sight. So that's point one, the peculiarity of the Christian life. I want us to consider now point two, the characteristics of the Christian life. And Peter highlights three characteristics of the Christian life that we should take note of. Three things we see about, three things that were true about these Christians that are true of all Christians. And that is that they loved Jesus, they believed in Jesus, and they were filled with joy because of Jesus. Look again at verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Love for Jesus, faith in Jesus, and joy from Jesus were traits that characterized Peter's audience. They loved Jesus. Jesus was altogether precious to them. Their hearts were moved by his loveliness, stirred with affection for Jesus because of all he had done for them. They cherished him not only as the savior of the world, but as their savior, exclaiming with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And their love wasn't merely an internal warming of the affections with no discernible difference on how they lived. Like all loves, Their love for Jesus changed the way they lived. It propelled them to action. They loved Jesus not only in word, but in deed, in action, and in truth. Their love propelled them towards holy living. Just as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. These Christians, out of their love for Christ, sought to put off the passions of their former ignorance. They sought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called, and they endured the opposition that often awaits Jesus' people and responded in love to those who persecuted them. Right, Just as all loves transform us more and more into the image of the thing we love, these Christians were becoming more and more like Jesus because they loved him. They also believed in him. They had been awakened to the state of their soul. They had been awakened to their corrupt condition before God, to the eternal separation from God that awaited them in the judgment, to the fact that they could do nothing to affect their own salvation. They had been awakened to the fact that if God had not made a way for them to be forgiven, they would have perished forever. And when they heard the gospel of God's forgiveness through his son Jesus, they believed in him. There was no separation of head and heart in these Christians. They fully intellectually entrusted themselves to Jesus' saving work on the cross, right? They weren't like a man on a plane that is minutes from crashing who is handed a parachute and who looks at the parachute and says, I believe in you. And you're like, now put it on. And he says, no, I believe in the parachute. Well, put it on. No, I believe in the parachute. No, these Christians put on Jesus Christ. They didn't just look at his saving work on the cross. They put on that saving work, fully entrusting themselves to it. They didn't look to him as a great man or a moral teacher or a good person or one among many ways to get to God. They heard his declaration that he is the way, 
the truth and the life, and nobody will come to the Father except through him, and they believed him. Not only that, though they hadn't seen him, they believed that he was coming again to bring about the consummation of the salvation they'd already begun to experience, and that filled them with great joy. Notice what Peter says about their joy. Look at verse eight. It was inexpressible and filled with glory. They had a joy that couldn't adequately be communicated by human language. And that joy was grounded in the fact that they knew Jesus was coming back for them. The hardships we are experiencing right now are not the end. The fact that we do not see Jesus right now is not the end. These hardships will come to an end, and we will see Christ when he comes for us. Look at verse 9. They were in the process of obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. They had already been saved. It was finished but they had not yet seen the fulfillment of their salvation. That would happen when Jesus returned. And because they knew God was guarding them until the coming of Jesus Christ, that he was committed to keep them from stumbling and to presenting them blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, they were filled with inexpressible joy in the present moment. They lived with a grounded awareness that the sufferings of this present life as awful as those sufferings could be, were not worth comparing to the glory that was going to be revealed when Jesus Christ returned. And just as Peter was affirming the presence of these characteristics among these Christians, he's not saying to them, where's your love? Where's where's your belief? Where's your Jesus? He said, you love him. You believe in him. You have joy that comes from him. I've heard about the stories of your faith just as he's affirming the presence of these characteristics in his audience and commending them because of those characteristics, I want to do the same for the members of this church, for the members of CBC. I am confident that if Peter were alive today, he would see these same characteristics at work in you. He would see your love for Jesus your faith in Jesus, your joy that comes from Jesus. One of the great privileges of being your pastor is that I get a behind-the-scenes look at all the ways that God's Spirit is at work in individual members who you guys may not hear about this. I get to hear about all these stories, and it's just supremely encouragement, encouraging to me. It's one of the great blessings of being your pastor. I get a front-row seat to witness your love for Jesus your trust in Jesus, and your joy in Jesus. I've seen your love for Jesus displayed in all the various ways you all have sought to walk in Jesus's ways and put sin to death. I've seen your faith in Jesus as you have held fast to him through trials. I've seen your joy increase even as you experience various trials and tribulations that are part of our calling. I think of the the different deaconesses of children's ministry who out of love for Jesus Christ have joyfully served time and time again in children's ministry seeking to share the gospel with the children of the church that they might come to know the love of God through Jesus Christ. I've seen Katie Jones time and time again out of love for her neighbors giving herself to seeing them 
come to know Jesus, hear about Jesus, and doing good to them, spending time with them. I think of Missy and her commitment to believing and teaching on biblical marriage and sexuality in the face of all opposition that you, you experience from the people who are just so opposed to the message that you're preaching. And that is a testimony of your faith. I think of John Tobias's steadfast joy. Where are you, John? John Tobias's steadfast joy rooted in the goodness and faithfulness of God. I could go on and on through each, each of the members of this church. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and are filled with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now I know that when it comes to love for Jesus, faith in Jesus, rejoicing with joy, some of us might wonder, gosh, am I even a Christian? Like, I, I've struggled to love Jesus by obeying him this past week. I, I'm, I'm a mix of belief and unbelief, and I rarely have ever experienced inexpressible joy. That's you. I want you to think of love, faith, and joy like a pulse, a heartbeat. Last week at the pool that we go to in Bowie, a teenage boy had to be rescued out of the well. So he got into the well, knowing full well that he couldn't swim. And then he moved far enough away from the wall where he couldn't grab it anymore. And he sank to the bottom. The lifeguard acted decisively, stood up, blew the whistle as she was supposed to do, dove to the bottom and started to rescue him. But he was a teenage boy, he was a big kid, and she was struggling to get him out. And so it took some time. Two more people had to jump in and help pull him out. They finally got him out of the water. When they got him out of the water, he was limp and motionless, right? They start moving him around, searching for vitals. They go to take a pulse. They find a faint pulse. What do they yell? He's alive! He's alive! We found a pulse, right? Your love may be imperfect. Your faith may be weak. Your joy may wax and wane. Your pulse may be faint. But friends, the faintest presence of those things, faith, love, joy, shows you're alive. You're alive. If you believe in Jesus, then you belong to Jesus. And God is guarding you and your weak pulse for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He is even sustaining that pulse by his power. Being assured of that, right, we can then ask the question with confidence in God's love, why our love, faith, and joy are weaker than perhaps we would like them to be. I think for Christians, the answer largely boils down to two things, suffering and sin. Your love, faith, and joy may not be where you want them to be because of suffering. We experience all sorts of suffering in this life, and that suffering buffets our love, tests our faith, and dampens our joy. So just this past Thursday, I had an episode of corneal erosion 
from the injury that I suffered about a month ago. So corneal erosion, the doctor said, hey, after this scratch on your cornea heals, you are going to experience for the rest of your life cornea erosion. And cornea erosion is when your eye is closed at night, it sticks to your cornea, and then when you open it in the morning, it pulls the cornea off that was regrowing. And it can be very painful. And it was intensely painful. It like shocked me awake at 3 a.m. and I laid there just like bawling, crying, not because it was like, like I was in so much pain, but it's just like, I can't stop my, literally can't stop my eye from watering. This is so painful. That happened on Thursday. Then on Friday, I got a call from my dad saying that my mom, who many of you know, has been suffering from dementia, only has a few days to live. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And I know I have reasons for joy. I'm just not experiencing lots of it. Suffering impacts our love, our faith, and our joy. But those things may also not be where we want them to be because of sin. Sin reveals our lack of love for Jesus. Sin can cause us to question whether we believe in Jesus affecting our faith, and it quenches our joy. Our experience of love, faith, and joy will increase or decrease in direct relationship to whether or not we're actively giving ourselves to sin. This includes a self-reliant spirit that doesn't spend time with God in his word and in prayer. Right? Love, faith, and joy are relational realities. They are part and parcel of our relationship with God. And if we want our love for Jesus, our faith in Jesus, and our joy in Jesus to grow, we need to be spending time with Jesus in his word and in prayer. Some say absence makes the heart grow fonder. Maybe in some context that's true. But if we're talking about our relationship to God, being absent from spending time in his word and in prayer with him doesn't make the heart grow fonder, but colder, quieter. I want you to think of the word in prayer like divine oxygen blowing over the coals of your heart. If you've ever tended to a fire in your fireplace during the winter months, then you've seen this, right? You get, you get a, a, a nice hot fire going, the original wood burns down, creates a bed of coals underneath the wood, and the, that bed of coals, right, just blazes red hot, keeps the wood on top burning and whatnot. But if you take one of those coals from that bed of embers and you just move it six inches away, where it's no longer touching that bed of hot coals, what happens to that ember? It goes out. It becomes cold, right? The, the word and prayer and fellowship with God and fellowship with his people is like that bed of embers. If we want our love, our faith, and our joy to to burn hot, we need to remain in contact with those things. But there's also a danger here when we talk about our love for Jesus, our faith, and our joy in the gospel, right? Our love, our joy, our faith, they are part of our sanctification. And what do we know about sanctification? It is impartial, incomplete, always in progress, never perfect. 
which means your love, your faith, and your joy will also always be impartial, incomplete, in progress, never perfect. I don't want you going away from here this morning looking to your love, looking to the strength of your faith, looking to the amount of your joy for your assurance in the faith. Look to Jesus. Look to his mighty and awesome work of redemption on the cross. Look to his perfect life. Look to his resurrection from the dead. Look to his ascension into heaven. Look to him, look at him seated at the right hand of God and know that if you've laid hold of him by faith, you have also right now been seated with him in the heavenly places. The work of redemption and salvation in your, work, in your life is complete. It is finished. It's in looking to Jesus ultimately that our love, faith, and joy will grow especially as we look to him and the salvation that he's bringing at his second coming, which brings me to my final point, the destiny of the Christian life. I want you to look again at the passage, verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I just want you to look real quick at verses three to nine and notice something. In these six verses alone, seven verses, excuse me, three different times he refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want you to look first at verse five. We are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's talking about the return of Jesus. Now look at verse eight, or excuse me, seven. You suffer so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now verse nine, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, when Jesus returns. Three times in these verses, Peter's like, look to the second coming, y'all. Look to the second coming. Jesus is coming again. That reality has to ground our life. It has to be central to our awareness as Christians. The destiny of the Christian life is salvation when Jesus Christ returns. The destiny of the Christian life is the fulfillment of our salvation at his return. We are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Peter makes salvation here sound like a process, and if it's a process, what, can it be lost? Like it hasn't actually been completed, but that's not what he means. Peter regularly throughout his letter talks about salvation and redemption in terms of the already and the not yet. Already, you have been born again. Chapter one, verse three. Already, you were ransomed, chapter 1, verse 18. Already, you have received mercy, chapter 2, verse 11. Peter is crystal clear that we have already experienced salvation and we have not yet experienced the fulfillment of our salvation. This is why he says in verse 5 that we are being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time when Jesus returns. We've already been saved 
but we have not yet fully been saved when he comes to restore us to himself. The fulfillment of our salvation will happen when Jesus returns in glory to bring us into his glorious presence. In that sense, we're like a newly married couple, right? Who has just finished the wedding ceremony. They're still at the church. And so they haven't consummated their marriage. They are already married, but they are not yet married. They haven't experienced the fulfillment of their marriage. In the same way, we who have laid hold of Jesus Christ by faith have been sanctified by the Spirit, set apart by God, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, redeemed from slavery to sin, brought into the presence of God's marvelous light. We have been saved, and the inexpressibly glorious fulfillment of that salvation is still yet to come. Our destiny... Our future is an inexpressibly glorious salvation at the return of Jesus Christ, where we will experience, Peter says, the salvation of our souls. Soul there stands not just for the immaterial aspect of our existence. Peter's using that word to refer to the whole person, the totality of our being, body and soul. When Jesus returns, arrayed in his royal robes, adorned in his beauty, emanating divine power, surrounded by the angelic host, he is coming to finally and fully bring about the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. He is coming to save you. He is coming to raise you in glory. He is coming to raise you in power, to raise you finally and fully freed from the effects of sin. The mortal will be swallowed up by immortality. Pain will fall away. Sorrow will be no more. Tears will no longer flow. Death will be no more and sin will be put away forever. And you and I will enter into life, abundant life, glorious life in the new heavens and new earth, the eternal temple of God where we will no longer walk by faith, but we will live by sight. We will see the King of Kings and Lord of lords. We will lay our eyes on the lion of the tribe of Judah, and we will behold the lamb who was slain for sinners. Our God, who is three in one, will no longer be hidden from us, but will grant us the gift of dwelling in his eternal house and gazing upon his beauty forever. Friends, we are able to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressibly glorious because we have a guaranteed future signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and the unwavering commitment of God to fulfill every one of his promises to his people. Yes, we have a glorious inheritance. To the teens here, If you are looking for joy, you will only find it in Jesus. The world wants to tell you that joy will be found in following your own heart, in you doing you, in expressing yourself as you see fit, and not letting anybody put any boundaries around you because you are your own God and your own maker. The world's going to want you to find joy in material things, possessions, and money, and whatever it might be. Our heart is searching for a joy that will fulfill it. And there is only one person who can provide that joy. And his name is Jesus.
you turn to Jesus in faith and let God's love fill your heart and you will be given a joy that is beat down at times because God says life is gonna be hard. We're hard pressed, but not, dis- not destroyed. We're not crushed, right? But we are hard pressed. But that joy will anchor you throughout the entirety of your life. And that joy, when Jesus returns, will be inexpressibly glorious. You can even experience that inexpressibly glorious joy now in the midst of life's hardships. That's not just for the teens here, but for anyone who's looking for that joy. God can provide it. God will provide it to all who trust on him. Only Jesus can provide the joy that comes from being reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, redeemed from sin's power, and granted the glorious inheritance of everlasting life in God's presence. And God will give that joy to all who put their faith in Jesus. And while the life of faith is hard, beset by trials, faced with temptations, experience all sorts of tribulations, you can know that you will not always walk by faith. A day is coming soon when our faith will be turned to sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would write these truths upon our heart, that you would increase our love, strengthen our faith, and cause our joy in Christ to abound. And help us not to look to ourselves for assurance, but look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our salvation and who is coming again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.